0: To Matthew's Gospel, Chapter twenty seven, this morning, this Resurrection Sunday morning. We'll pick things up in verse fifty seven. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, laid it in his new tomb which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. And on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, "'Sir, we remember while he was still alive,' that is, Jesus, how that deceiver said, "'After three days I will rise.'" And therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night, steal him away, and say to the people that he has risen from the dead, and so the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way and make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake... For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay." And go quickly and tell the disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee, and there you shall see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to bring the disciples word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! And so they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, "'Do not be afraid. "'Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, "'and there they will see me.'" Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled the elders and consulted with them, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying uh, to them, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. Now that's one of the worst alibis in the history of the world. How would you know that the disciples stole him if you were sleeping? And if this comes to the governor's ears, We will appease him and make you secure. And so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for our resurrected Jesus. We thank you for all that is ours because of the cross and all that he accomplished for us there. And then, Lord, Lord, we thank you on this day for all that is ours and this life and all of the life to come because of that resurrection thank you lord for all of the victory that jesus has purchased for us and not only purchased for us lord but made a free gift to us made a part of our daily lives lord we thank you for his resurrection power that is in us by the holy spirit we pray that you would bless our time in your word this morning, and that you would minister it to our hearts and speak to us from the vantage point of heaven of this great event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And we ask it, Lord, in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. In our text, Jesus has been crucified, and following his crucifixion, two men, one known as Joseph from the city or village, really, of Arimathea. And John's gospel tells us that another man, a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, came together to ask Pilate for permission to take Jesus' body off of the cross and in order to bury him. And Pilate granted them Uh, permission to fulfill their request. And they took Jesus' body and they laid it in a tomb. And the tomb that they laid Jesus' body in, we're told, was a tomb that had been carved out of stone. It was not a natural cave. It was a tomb that had been carved out of stone for uh, Joseph himself and also for his family. Typically, when a rich man, and only a rich man could afford to hire laborers To chisel a a tomb out of solid rock, but when a man was rich enough to do that, he would make it large enough that a single body could lay in that tomb, and then enough room for another body to lay uh, next to that body. And so that would be typically, if you had the money, how you would lay out that kind of of tomb. And so this is uh, what Joseph would have probably secured. There would have been extra places in that tomb uh, for family to later be buried following his death. Then to secure a a tomb in those days, what they would do is roll a large stone across the mouth of the tomb or the mouth of the cave. And so the stone, don't view a, a big gigantic boulder that they would just roll up against the opening of the tomb, The stone that would be rolled across the face of a tomb would be much the shape of like a spoked wagon wheel, only solid. A trough would be cut into the stone uh, in front of the opening of of the tomb. The great stone, uh, kind of a wheel there, would be placed in the trough and then rolled down uh, in terms of going downhill till it covered up the face of the tomb, then that typically the stone would be carved in such a way that it would stop there, making it virtually impossible to remove that stone. It would have been very difficult to roll a stone of that size up against uh, the gravity and against the the, the pull down of, of of how they would set that up, and that was the way that they would secure. a a tomb. Jesus then, as we come to our passage, had been laid in that tomb, his body wrapped in linen and spices, the stone rolled across the opening of of the tomb. And yet none of this was sufficient to alleviate one very haunting concern of the Jewish religious leaders. And we're told in verse 62, on the very next day, following Jesus' death and his burial, that Jesus' body had been in the tomb for a full night now, that wonderful three-day and three-night retreat in Abraham's bosom uh, there in Hades is uh, already started. And yet these religious leaders were told in verse 62, gathered together to Pilate. I love this story, and I love all of the elements of it, and I love this particular aspect of it. Everything had gone their way the day before in the crucifying of Jesus. They had demanded his crucifixion. Pilate had granted them their demand, and yet they go home that night to go to sleep confident as they go to sleep, that they have eliminated the great risk that Jesus posed to their power and to all of their traditions and their religious financial empire that meant so much to them. And yet when they wake up the following day to a man, they cannot rest. Each of them wakes up thinking about Jesus. He is still troubling them. And they have this unshakable sense that for all of the appearances of victory that somehow they have still lost this war that they have waged against Jesus. And each of them has this terrible sense that the cross has not solved their problem but that it has only created an even greater problem for them. For now they are concerned, we're told in verse 63, about the possibility of Jesus' resurrection. And it is a legitimate concern on their behalf, because Jesus had spoken repeatedly through His public ministry to His disciples that He would be mistreated, that He would be brutally treated and ultimately killed and crucified by the religious leaders in Jerusalem, but that after three days he would rise again from the dead. To the Jewish religious leaders themselves, one day they came to Jesus and they demanded a sign of him as a testimony to his, uh, the rightfulness of his claim to be the promised Messiah, and it was a crazy command, uh, demand that they made of Jesus to prove by some miracle that he was the promised Messiah because proof was all around them, all around the entire land of Israel. You had lepers who had been cleansed. You had the blind who could see. You had the deaf who could now hear. You had people who had been raised from the dead. The gospel was being preached to the poor. He was teaching in a way where even those that were hostile to him admitted that no man has ever spoken like this man. They had plenty of reason for faith in him as the promised Messiah. But Jesus graciously conceded to give them one more sign. And the sign that he gave them was the sign of his resurrection. And he told them that an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah, Jesus said, was three days and three nights in the belly of the the great fish. And three days and three nights only is the idea. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jesus said, So shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The idea is three days and three nights only speaking of his resurrection. And all of this was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy of King David in Psalm 16, which declared that when the Messiah came into the world, he would die but that he would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to see corruption or to rot. David put it this way, Psalm 16, verse 10. Speak, writing to the Father, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Another reason that the religious leaders were troubled uh, at the potential of Jesus' resurrection is that resurrection happened to be one of his specialties. <laughs> he raised the son of the widow of Nain uh, from the dead. He raised the 12-year-old daughter of the ruler of the synagogue by the name of Jairus from the dead. He raised his good friend Lazarus in the city of Bethany from the dead. And so they gather together these religious leaders to voice their concerns and they come up with a plan to protect themselves. But once again, they've got a problem. It will require Pilate's involvement. And so they come to Pilate in verse 64 and they make their request. They request that he would authorize a Roman guard. And behind that Roman guard, all of the power and the authority of Rome to guard against any possibility of the disciples coming by night, stealing away Jesus' body, and then falsely declaring that he has risen from the dead. So their request of Pilate is designed to eliminate any possibility of that happening. Their concern, verse 64, is so that the last deception, if this were to occur, will be worse than the first. In other words, the report concerning His resurrection would be more damaging to them than His claim to be the Messiah and the Son of God had already been to them. I think that it is very interesting that verses 63 and 64 provide proof from the very mouths of the enemies of Jesus against any later fantasy that might arise within the heart of man that Jesus had not actually died on the cross, but that he had merely fainted on the cross, and that he had then been taken off of the cross, placed within the coolness of the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and lying in that coolness, he revived from his fainted condition. This is known as the swoon theory that people uh, speak of when they don't want to believe in Jesus' resurrection. Even these enemies of Jesus would not attach themselves to something as ridiculous as that. They plainly declare Jesus to be dead. Another amusing aspect of all of this is the concern of these religious leaders that Jesus' disciples were capable of any kind of a conspiracy or a plot to come in and steal his body at night and then give a, a false report that he had been risen from the dead. Their concern that the disciples were capable of this was completely unfounded. They gave these disciples more credit than they ever deserved. The disciples at this moment in time aren't even thinking about Jesus' resurrection. When the women came to the tomb on that Sunday morning that Jesus was resurrected, as we've read here in chapter 28, they didn't come expecting a resurrected Jesus. We're told in the other Gospels they came with more spices in order to anoint His dead body. Here in Matthew chapter Uh, 28 verse 7, the angel of the Lord, he rolled back the stone on that Sunday morning, not in order to let Jesus out of the tomb, but in order to allow the women and then later the disciples to become witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, witnesses of his empty tomb, and God had to then, the angel had to then send the women to inform the disciples of Jesus' resurrection. Later that same evening, when Jesus appears to the disciples in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem, as they're huddled together in fear, after Jesus departs, Thomas declares that he won't even believe that Jesus appeared to them in his absence, demanding as proof that unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print uh, of the nails and my side into his hand, then I will not believe. That was the level of unbelief among the disciples. No, these people, these disciples, God blessed them, but they weren't even remotely capable Of thinking about much less pulling off what these religious leaders were worried about. The disciples at this point in time are not concerned about any deception. Their their lone concern is with self-preservation. Pilate's response to the request of the religious leaders is there in verse 65. He grants them their guard but he does it in a very interesting way. He does so with the added statement, go your way And make it as secure as you know how. In other words, gentlemen, secure that tomb as best as you know how. And he not only gives them their guard, but he makes all of the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem available to them in order to, uh, for the task of guarding that tomb. He had plenty of soldiers in in Jerusalem, uh, the Antonia Fortress there. Uh, that that garrisoned the uh, Roman forces there in Jerusalem and a significant uh, force of Roman soldiers was in there for the time uh, of the Passover. They were stationed there, and Pilate invites them to take as many of these men as they feel that they need uh, for the task. And he leaves the management of it entirely up to them. In other words, take as many as you need to guard against a false report of his resurrection. I think that this statement reveals that Pilate is either amused with them or he's fed up with them at this point. And I don't think he's amused with them, not anymore, because he tells them to go their way. And in the original language, that phrase, go your way, is one word. And it literally means to lead under. The idea is of something sinking out of sight. He is telling them to get out. He is telling them to disappear, to go away. And at this point in time, Pilate is fed up with these religious leaders. He is fully aware of what had happened to him on the day before. He is fully aware that they had manipulated him into ordering Jesus' crucifixion the day before. And he knew that they had delivered Jesus to him out of envy. Over and over again on that day, Pilate comes out and he declares that he can find no fault in Jesus. And each time they met his defense of Jesus with the demand that he be crucified and Pilate sensing himself ensnared by the trap that they had laid for him, he desperately tried to wash his hands of the situation but they would not let him. And in the words of Matthew chapter 27 verse 24, when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, there's that sense he's been cornered, he's been trapped by a trap that had been set for him. He's not innocent, but that's not the subject of our sermon this morning. But he knows that he was, uh, was trapped by them, and you can be sure that none of this sat on Pilate the next day any better than it sat on him the day before In effect, Pilate is declaring, I will supply you with as many guards as you deem necessary to secure that tomb. Take as many as you need so that on the third day following this man's death, you will not have me, his disciples, or anyone else to blame for what happens. And Pilate seems to know that they have embarked on what is known as a fool's errand, that they have no more chance of stopping this resurrection, of making a liar out of the entirety of the Godhead, out of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They had no more chance of doing that than rising up before dawn and stopping the rising of the sun with a waving of their hands. And undeterred, verse 66, they then proceeded to make the tomb as secure as they knew how, setting not only a Roman guard up around that tomb, but then having the stone covering the tomb sealed. And how successful were their attempts? We read here in verse 28, verses 1 through 4, notice how troubled heaven was by this Roman guard and that sealed tomb. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. That'll take care of any seal. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. That'll take care of any guard. And he came and he rolled back the stone from the door, and he sat on it. I don't think he needed a rest. And his countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow and the guards shook for fear because of him and became like dead men. This is not happening. This is not happening. I'm not seeing this. I'm not seeing this. This is the best in Rome's army dedicated to the praetorium, Jerusalem. Things had turned out worse than they had imagined. They thought that their biggest problem was the possibility of a false report of Jesus' resurrection. And they ended up with a bigger problem. And the bigger problem they ended up with was a real resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Bible declares, and wonderfully so, that God is able to make even the wrath of man to praise Him. He's able to make even the wrath of man to praise Him. Psalm 76, verse 10. And He certainly did it here on the day of Jesus' resurrection. These enemies of Jesus thought they would provide proof against His resurrection, but instead they ended up providing proof for it They wanted to eliminate any possibility of the disciples coming by night, stealing away his body, then falsely declaring that Jesus had risen from the dead. And with their guard, they eliminated that possibility, leaving only an actual resurrection to explain that empty tomb. And that seal and those guards established the fact that if the tomb was really found empty on the third day, then the only thing that could explain it would be the fact that Jesus must have risen indeed from the dead. And little did they realize that they were providing, proving the fact of Jesus' resurrection beyond controversy. During every trip to Israel... One of the sites that we visit is the garden tomb. And it's just the stone's throw away from Golgotha, from Mount Calvary. And that tomb there in that garden matches the gospel's description of the tomb that Jesus was buried in to perfection. And on the door that is uh, attached to that tomb, they have hung a wood-carved sign which carries the message of Easter or Resurrection Sunday, and what is carved on that door is, He is not here, He is risen, the message of the angels. And as each person that goes on a trip to Israel enters into that empty tomb, and then they reemerge out of that empty tomb, they have become one more witness to the emptiness of that tomb to the fact of Jesus' resurrection. But there is an even greater witness to the resurrection of Jesus than to visit the tomb personally in Jerusalem and to testify to the fact that it is empty. There is a greater witness to the resurrection of Jesus available to us then making that long trip to Israel to witness that tomb. And the greater witness comes with being born again by putting my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord, by coming to Him and confessing my sin by saying to God, God, I believe your assessment of me when you call me a sinner. I've been less than perfect all of the days of my life. And God, I'm not surprised that when I finally would run into you in life, that I would run into a God who is so perfectly holy and pure that but even one sin in my life would separate me from a relationship with you. And so, God, I confess my sin to you, and I ask you for the forgiveness of my sins as I put my trust and faith in Jesus, who you've sent into the world in order to provide me with the forgiveness of sins because of the greatness of your love. And, Lord, I ask that as I put my faith in Jesus as my Savior, that you would take my life and make it your own. And when a person does that, the greatest miracle that occurs in the world occurs at that moment in time, and it will happen all over the world today. And that is God's Holy Spirit will come into that person's life, and they will be born again by the Holy Spirit And when a person does this, this risen Jesus comes into our lives in the person of the Holy Spirit, and then he then makes a change in our lives that only a living, resurrected Jesus can. Perhaps you've known someone who is a Christian And you knew them before they were a Christian, and you knew them after they were a Christian. And what they were before they were a Christian, you were afraid of any building they would walk into, any church, that it would collapse on them if people knew their story. Surely God would bring His judgment down on the church. You notice this is all concrete and steel in here. It's made for the worst sinners to come into this building. But it's a wonderful thing, and I hope all of you that don't know the Lord yet have witnessed that resurrection power of Jesus in some Christian's life, where you look and it may have been and may still be the greatest aggravation to you, but you knew what they were. And what they are today, you look at and you say, I can't recognize them. I have never known such a change to come over a person's life. What in the world can be the explanation for it? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he is risen from the dead and that he has found a way in his love in His risen condition, to come into our lives and bring His authority and His victory over death into our lives to give us the ability to live an entirely new life. There's a song that is in this vein that I really, really love, and Mike and the worship team opened with it today. I never know what they're going to do on the worship team. We don't choreograph any of this that way but they sang it to open the the service and let me read the words to you again i serve a risen savior he's in the world today i know that he is living whatever men may say i see his hand of mercy i hear his voice of cheer and just the time i need him he's always near he lives, He lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, He lives, salvation to impart. And here it is. You ask me how I know He lives. He lives within my heart. I love all of the theological significance of Jesus' Resurrection. But what I love most about his resurrection is that he has come into my life as a personal witness to his resurrection. And that is available to each of us here today as we would just confess our sin to God, ask for his forgiveness. Put our faith in Jesus as the promised Savior of the world. And then invite God to come into our hearts and take control of our lives and begin a relationship with him that will outlast all of this life and all of eternity to come. And it's all there for the asking. It's all there for the receiving. Your personal witness to the resurrection of Jesus It is available to all six billion people that inhabit this world this morning. Not only this gigantic mass of humanity, but available to each and every individual. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after this service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayer so you can identify them easily. And they'd love to talk with you and pray with you to begin that relationship with Jesus this morning, relationship that will go on forever and ever and ever. Imagine the resurrected Jesus coming into your life and now living his life in you and through you. Now, that's a dramatic change for most of us. (laughs) That's what he does. And they'll love to pray with you to invite him into your heart And then give you a Bible and give you some literature to help you get started in your walk with the Lord. Let's stand together and let's pray.